0: I'd like to start out by thanking everybody for the nice emails and for leaving comments on iTunes. I really appreciate it. And I promised that I would read some of these on the air if uh, you sent them, so here goes. This is from someone named Boogie Studio 22 and I'm not sure if that's the name that his mama gave him. I was made aware of Otis's show last fall, but didn't get around to listening to it until several months ago. I just finished listening to every episode. I was immediately hooked on Otis's ability to relate to his musical cohorts and make them feel comfortable, probably because they're already friends. His guests reflect on their musical history, sharing wonderful stories and anecdotes. And finally, there's an interesting thread about regional wrestling in quite a few of the episodes. Highly recommended. Thank you, and keep sending those emails and leaving comments on iTunes. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee and I'm staring out the window and the dogwoods are blooming. Just a beautiful, beautiful spring day. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it and everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Chris Shiflet. Chris is the guitar player in a band called the Foo Fighters, and you can find out everything you need to know about Chris at chrisshifflettmusic.com. I met Chris a few years ago at a party in London. It was a fundraiser for Jail Guitar Doors, and Billy Bragg was there, Wayne Kramer, and Mick Jones and i remember just chatting with chris for quite a while and getting along with him really good we kind of hit it off a little bit and it turned out chris had flown from los angeles to london got out of the plane went there played some songs at this party and then the next morning flew back home from london to los angeles all on his own dime that's a that's a road warrior right there but i remember chris and i laughing about us being able to be at this party in a foreign country with Billy and Wayne and Mick and just wondering how we ended up here. But a few weeks ago, Chris and I ended up playing on the same bill in Austin, Texas. And the next morning we ended up meeting up and doing a little bit of catching up and uh, we recorded this chat over at my buddy Cameron's house. Here's Chris Shiflet. I feel like I was really lucky because
1: I had two older brothers and they were, my oldest brother was about seven years older than me, and my and then the middle brother was about five years older than me. So by the time I was um, like aware of anything, my earliest memories um, are of music, you know, because my brothers were into music. My dad was into music. He got my older brother into music, and it just sort of trickled down. So I just remember being like a little kid sitting in in our bedroom and and looking at like you know Hard Day's Night and Rolling Stones Greatest Hits and. Jailhouse rock and all, all you know, Bowie live and all, all that sort of stuff. I said this before, but like uh, music to us was the way some people sort of embraced sports. It was like a total obsession and like how we identified ourselves. And you know, and a lot of our friends I feel like were the same way, but that was my whole life when I was a kid. It's like when we got, we got, I remember my, when my brother brought, my brother Scott brought home, um, Kiss Originals, which was like a a repackaging of their first three albums, right? Like after the live album was like a hit, and this must have been like I don't even know. This was like this was in Maryland, um, and it was around 1976 or 75 or something like that. So I was really young, and that was a total game changer, you know. In in our house, like Kiss was, we were just completely obsessed, and we actually had um, my mom's two sisters worked at casablanca and one of them my aunt candy married um neil bogart's cousin larry my uncle larry and so when we were i mean this was a crazy thing but we would get like all the kiss records like uh you know the promo copies like that's like my first experience with like a promo copy you know of, of a record and that was back in the days when it would be like you know clipped at the corner and and you get it and and you'd you know th- th- this was an amazing thing i remember in uh this, we had moved back out to Santa Barbara at this point, and this would have been around 1978. Um, it was right around the time maybe Kiss Alive Two came out, somewhere in, in that time frame. Um, Who's was it? It was Paul Stanley had a birthday party at Neil Bogart's house down in L.A., and me and my brothers got to go, which was <laughs> and and so we saw all of the Kiss guys and got to meet them without their makeup. Really? Right? Yeah, and you know and. And I don't even know if I really have real memories of this or if I've sort of created memories because I was like really young. Know, I was like seven years old or something. I think I remember it. I mean, yeah, and uh, at first, I, they, they weren't going to bring me because I was too young and I just put up such a stink. You know, I just had like a temper tantrum and then my mom forced them to bring me, But um, it, which was the most amazing thing ever. But imagine like going back to school after that, and telling your friend, no one ever believed us. <laughs> it was just like you so you're like a like a pathological liar at that point, you know what I mean? But it was like it was amazing. Did they um, let you take pictures or anything? No, 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 no. And my memory is that like Ace Fraley and Peter Chris were really drunk. And and my brother played pinball with one of them. Like that. But uh, yeah, so you know, KISS was just like our life. And then in my house, things kind of broke into like my oldest brother got really into Black Sabbath. Right. So we loved Black Sabbath. But then my middle brother got really into Rush. So that was like a diversion, you know? And, and I stayed true to Kiss, you know? And so at a certain point, like well after, you know, like I'm mean, the unmasked and music from the Elder and the, that era, like my, you know, I was still holding on to Kiss. And my brother Scott had sort of gone into Rush and Mike was holding true to like Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. And that was sort of the, those were the dividing lines,
0: you know? I bought Destroyer on the day that it came out. Nice. I sold a, I mean, I saved up my allowance, and uh, my mom took me to Woolworths. Nice. And I bought it for like $5.75.
1: Well, you know, I just recently had a great experience where I bought my kids a record player. Because I don't even have, I'm ashamed to say, I don't even have a record player in my house, and haven't for a long time. But I still have all my old vinyl from when I was a kid. So I bought my kids this little, like, you know, it's supposed to look like a retro little suitcase thing. You've probably seen them, and it's a little, you know, you can put your records on So I took him to the record store. I was like, "Let's go down. There's a record store not too far from where we live. You know, with a bunch of vintage stuff in there." So I took him down there to buy some records, and I had a a cool thing. Like we're you know, they love Kiss. My kids are obsessed with my kids. Love Kiss and the Hives. Um, It's great. And uh, so when I was a little kid, the you know, because I held older brothers, I didn't have to buy records really. And so I, the first record I bought with my own money was Dynasty. And so the first record that my oldest son bought the other day was Dynasty, (laughs) and I kind of I kind of pushed him into it a little bit, like, come on, why don't you get this one? Get this, you know, Um, because I wanted to have that, you know, that like clear line. Um, I started playing guitar when I was eleven, and when I was in ninth grade, I guess it would have been about fourteen. My, a buddy of mine came up to me and said, hey, we should put a band together for the talent show, which we did. And we learned two Kiss songs. We learned Rock and Roll All Night and uh, Strutter. And we played them at our talent show. And I just recently, when we a couple of years ago, we were making a Foo Fighter documentary. And so uh, I went and called a bunch of old friends to get like, old photos. And, hey, do you have any video clips or anything? And I got from the drummer in, in the band was called The Lost Kittens. And he had the, a videotape of us playing the talent show. This is my first gig ever. And it's the like I got to just put that up on YouTube because it is the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen. I'm like three feet tall. And then my hair is like another six inches taller because it's just like I just got like Aquanet and made it as big as possible. And we're trying to play these Kiss songs. And it just sounds like everybody's playing something like a different song. It's just total cacophony. It just <laughs> makes no sense. Um, but that was, but like, you know that was the first time you're ever on stage and people clapping and cheering. And just because you're out there with a loud amp, you know, your friends are going to respond. And it was, I mean, I was just, I was hooked at that point. Um, and I remember, I remember my first gig in like a club, we used to have this, uh, uh, and it wasn't a club, but we, there's a pool hall sort of on the lower end of state street in Santa Barbara called the golden Eagle pool hall. And in, when I was in 10th grade, I was in a band for a minute called Legion of doom. And, uh, we opened the bill for it was us, then this other local band Rat Pack, and then No Effects, and, uh, and 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 Excel was the headline. I don't know if you remember Excel was like a suicidal tendencies kind of, kind of punk rock band, and that was the first time I ever saw No Effects, and they moved to Santa Barbara right around that time, and I don't have real strong memories of that gig except that I lent my guitar to the guitar player in Rat Pack, Dave, and I remember he broke all my strings and smashed my Les Paul into the drummer's cymbal, um, and put a big dent in it and then handed it back to me like, thanks, buddy. Um <laughs> like, what the what the fuck just happened? The guitar still has that dent in it. I actually went on to play bass in that band a couple of years after that. Uh, but um those weren't bad experiences, man. Those were great experiences, you know, like ev- even the shitty ones when you're a kid, you just it's
0: it's all new. It's all new and, exciting and it's all and
1: exciting, and everything's possible. I remember my band in high school, same band, Lost Kittens. When we were a little bit older, we recorded a demo and put together like a promo pack, and drove down to LA with our guitar player's mom, um, the other guitar player's mom, uh, and and drove around and gave our promo pack to like bookers at clubs, and we would have been about like. I guess about 16, I think, when we did this. And we got a gig at Madame Wong's West, which was out in Santa Monica. And we're like, fucking no way. We're playing LA. Like, this is our <laughs> shot. And the headliner was this band called, I think they were called Electric Angels. And they were kind of like a happening band at that time. And this was a really good, like, band lesson or life lesson and we're we can't believe it a bunch of our friends jump in the car drive down there we're so stoked we get to the club and what we discover is it's a two-story club two different rooms electric angels is headlining the upstairs room at the exact same time Uh, that we're playing The Downstairs Room. (laughs) So there is literally, I have a picture from that gig, and there's my one friend, this guy Sky McGinnis, standing in the middle of the floor (laughs) while we're on stage, like staring at our feet. (laughs) (laughs) And then that was it, you know? And so it went from like our crowning moment of glory to like, oh, sad. but even still, even that, man, it's like, you know, you still went home with a smile on your face because, you, you know, you played Madame Wong's on a Wednesday night at 1 in the morning. Well, I moved to L.A. when I was about 18 and played around in bands and was, like, trying to do that whole thing, like, trying to get a record deal and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I one of my best friends, uh, I grew up with with Joey uh, Cape, the singer from Lagwagon, okay? Um, And I remember in, must have been around the end of 94, he said, oh, I'm going to move up to San Francisco. You know, you should move up there. Well, let's put a side project together or whatever. Um, So we moved up to San Francisco, and I got a job at Fat Records. And We never actually put our side project together, but about a month after getting a a job at Fat, No Use for a Name walked in, uh, who was a band on the label, and their guitar player had just quit and they had a tour booked um, like a week, you know, supposed to start like a week later. And they're going, you know, we don't we don't have a guitar player if anybody knows anybody. And I'm sitting there like I just got a job there and I didn't want to piss off Mike and Aaron and go like, oh, I'll be your guitar player, you know. <laughs> um, so I just kind of kept my mouth shut and, and they left. And then Mike came up to me afterwards and he goes, hey, you know, I, I know you play guitar like you should go try out for them. So I had his blessing, and I went and tried out for him, and I got the gig, and 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 left for a tour. And so I was in that band for like you know, about four and a half years, right? And um and when I joined, like I had to learn like a million songs, you know, really quick, and uh and and then just get in a band with a bunch of dudes I didn't know, you know, and that was the first uh, time I had ever toured in a band. I had done one tour a little bit before that as a roadie for my friend's band, which was the first time I ever went on the road which Was um, you know, that was another just great experience. I, I just wanted all my friends, it seemed like, were like in these bands that were going on the road, and like, you know, Joey would come back from Europe, like, dude, you gotta see it, it's amazing. You know, the shows are crazy, and I was so jealous. You know, I just wanted so badly to go on the road that uh, a, a, my buddy was the singer in this band, Wax, and they were going out with Face to Face in the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, and uh, and he asked me if I'd be roadie for it and i just leapt at the chance i didn't care what i had to do i was just like happy to do it um so so that was the first time i went on on the road in a band was with no use for name and i was in that band for about four and a half years and then i wound up getting an audition well the way it happened was a, a buddy of mine this guy bill who's actually bill and joe this is a roundabout story but i just recorded a new honky tonk covers record right and My friends, Bill and Joe, who have this label, Side One Dummy, that you may be familiar with, are putting it out. Joe was the singer in Wax. We we all lived together at one point in L.A. It's like, you know, I'm totally digressing here. but uh, And Bill is a guy that I grew up with, and we've all been friends for a really long time. We're all the best men at each other's weddings and all this stuff. So Bill calls me uh, one day. I'm in No Use for a Name, and we had just made a new record, and we're sort of planning going on tour and doing all this stuff. He calls me and says, uh, Hey, man, I think I can get you an audition for Guns N' Roses because yeah, they're auditioning guitar players. And, you know, I know somebody that works for them or whatever. And I was like, You yeah, know, I don't want to audition for Guns N' Roses, but I heard the Foo Fighters are looking for a guitar player. You know, see if you can get me an audition with them. He goes, Oh, you know, I, I know a woman that works for the law firm or whatever. You know, I'll, I'll call her. So a couple months go by and and, uh, and I'm out in New York visiting some friends and I get a phone call from, from this guy, Gus, who's Foo Fighters tour manager saying, Hey, we're having auditions next week, uh, down in Los Angeles. You know, uh, do you want to come in and audition? I, and I was just like, no problem. Just send me the, you know, I'll, I'll be there. Click. And then my next call was to the airline. I got on a flight the next morning and flew home and sat in my room for like a week and learned as many Foo Fighters songs as I could. And then went and auditioned for them. And at the first audition, um, you know we they were auditioning all these people for like you know they had like a week of auditions and you know every hour a new person would come in and they'd run through a couple songs or whatever so they are are
0: they filming this also
1: they did yeah and and uh gus our tour manager filmed the whole thing and there were some crazy things like a guy locked his guitar in his guitar case and couldn't get it out and you know (laughs) one guy learned all the songs in the wrong key there's all this stuff you know um but uh, I just for again for the documentary we made a couple years ago, uh, Gus went and unearthed that footage, and it's so funny. It was so weird to see after all these years because that was like you know it's coming up on 14 years ago, you know, and it was like it was really exactly as I remembered it. It was one of those rare times when you you know you're like wow my memory of that was actually totally correct. You know, like <laughs> walk in, I've got my backpack on and my you know Les Paul and a guitar case, like hello. Um, <laughs> But uh, so anyway, so I went down, I auditioned. We we only played a few songs, and we kind of sat around and talked for a little bit. And, um, I, and I think in that, I think I really, and I've never exactly asked Dave, you know, why did I get the gig or whatever, but I attribute it a lot to, we had a conversation in that first audition where I mentioned to him, like, hey, do you remember when you played with Scream at that uh, at that Chinese restaurant in Santa Barbara? And he was like, yeah, totally. And, and my band had opened up for, for them, right? And they actually went and stayed at our drummer's house that night. Um, and, like, he totally remembered, you know? And he said, oh, yeah, if I, you know, it was a few years, well, it was, you know, probably eight years prior to that or whatever. Um, and I, I, I seriously think that that's what got me the gig. As much as, you know, maybe I could play the songs or whatever and, and you know, didn't seem like a total fuck up or what, whatever. <laughs> Who, I I don't know, but I credit that as much as anything, you know, um, just that sort of like shared experience. Um, and so I I went home. I did the audition. Went home. It seemed to go well, you know. Went home. Sat around. A, you know, a week later they called me and said, "Hey, can you come down again? Um, you know, this weekend and 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 have a more extensive audition or whatever." So. You know, I'd just been sitting there playing along with their records, so I knew a bunch of their songs. And that, and they were my favorite band, like, of that. You know, this was, like, 19, no, when was it? 1999. And I loved the Foo Fighters, you know? Every time No Use made a record, we'd always, you know, give a list of our dream, you know, support gigs to our booking agent, and it was always Foo Fighters on there. Um, but I had just made a new No Use for Name record, and I was literally going on tour, like, the week, the next week um we had all this stuff booked and so i was being kind of shady about it you know like i was i'm not going to tell my band i'm going to try out for this other band you know cuz i didn't want to piss them off and things at that point um you know they like i'd been in the, in no use for a while and and there was we had had some issues you know through the years and it it was like don't get me wrong like it was great experience and everything but you know there was there was some friction there um over some touring issues and stuff uh you know tony the singer for no use who passed away not too long ago um which was totally horrible he really didn't like to fly and so we you know we would never we wouldn't go do a lot of the stuff that you know all the other bands in our scene were doing you know japanese tours and south american tours and Australia, all that stuff. And it was really frustrating. And we would butt heads about it a lot. And we had just had a, we had just, it was just like the stupidest thing maybe that I was ever involved with in a band where we, while we were making the record that we were making, we were planning a Japanese tour. And our, this was our plan. Let's not tell Tony. Now keep in mind, Tony's the singer, songwriter of the band. It's essentially his band, you know, really. It'd be like if we planned a tour now without telling Dave you know we're just let's just spring it on him at the last minute you know and that was our plan like we're just gonna pick him up that day and drive to the airport and not tell him so he doesn't freak out and and cancel it or whatever i kid you not that was what what we were planning on doing and he finds out about it and he was pissed you know i mean as he would be and we were you know i was so much younger back then and and i don't know why i thought that was a good idea in the first place but uh he was super pissed you know and i and i could look back and i can understand why um so that was sort of where things were at uh, in that band. You know, it was it was a little frustrating, and um, so I had this opportunity to to go try out for the Foos, and I was, you know, I, and I jumped at it, and so I went back down for a second audition. We 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 played through a bunch of songs, sat around. It seemed like it was great. You know, at the end of the rehearsal, Dave says, uh, "Hey, we're staying at this hotel. Why don't you come by tonight? You know, well, I'll give you a copy of the new record. They just made their third record, but it wasn't out yet. Give you a copy of the record, and you know, we can hang out. And, you know, have a beer or whatever." So I go down there, and and uh, you know, it's at the Sunset Marquee and Hollywood. Like, you know, this is like crazy to me. You know, like I'd never been around people famous like that you know i didn't know anybody in a big band um and here i am hanging out with dave fucking grohl and nate mendel and fucking taylor and we're all sitting in this bar and drinking beers and laughing and i was my head was just fucking spinning but nobody had said like you got the gig or you didn't get the gig you know what i mean so and dave gave me a copy of the new record hey man you know listen to this call me tomorrow let's get together we can play some guitar and and so at the end of the night, he goes, oh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to split. I'm going to go to bed. And I just had a few beers. And I go, hey, man, I don't want to press you or anything, but have you guys made a decision? You know, like, did I get the gig? And he was like, oh, you know, we have to talk about it. So we'll call you tomorrow. I was standing at my friend Bill's house. So I just sat. I, got, I went back to Bill's house, and I sat by the phone all day. I uh, just sat there and waited all day. And like fell asleep on the couch and drank coffee and read the paper and you know just sat around all day waiting for for them to call me and they called me I remember it like right around five o'clock and it was Dave and Taylor called me and said like all right buddy you, you know you got the gig so we start rehearsal tomorrow you know give, pack your bags because we're gonna you're not gonna see your friends for a while and I was just like all right great and I hung up and my next phone call was to Tony from from No Use to say you know. And I and it was where I hey man, um, I I got a gig in the Foo Fighters, and he was like, I remember he said, uh, for how long? And I go, well, hopefully forever. And he goes, oh, I, I like you know, oh, you're quitting, you know, kind of thing. Uh, and that was you know a hard phone phone call to make, you know, of course because we were all. You know, there was tension there, but we were all friends, and you know rightfully so I, I think they were pretty bummed at me for a while and eventually we all got over that and it's all fine, but would, you know,
0: I think that your buddies would would get get
1: it well, I tell you what the so that was like a Sunday night, right um i we went I went out with my friends and just got fucked up that night and got sushi and just celebrated and I was you know over the moon, and then I rehearsed for the next few days with um with booze. And then, at like, maybe Thursday or Friday or something of that week, we played our first gig at the Troubadour, like an unannounced gig. And this really, like, uh, I'll never forget this. Because, uh, you know, I, I think a Fat Mike. To me, Fat Mike um, he just gave me, like, so many crucial opportunities. He really helped me out at, at points. People don't understand this about Mike. Like, Mike really, like, supported so many people in the punk rock scene in – and for all I know, still does. But, you know, in, especially like in that time when I was living in San Francisco and playing in, in a band on Fat Records, you know, we also started me first in the Gimme Gimmies. Uh, me and him and Joey and uh, Dave from Lagwagon and Spike, who was in people. He, well, he, Spike at that time, the singer for the Gimmies, just worked at Fat and he would just walk around singing Misfits songs all day. And that's how, that's why he's the singer of, of, of the Gimme Gimmies. But anyway, so, you know, so between. Giving me a job at Fat, he basically got me the gig in No Use for a Name, or at least pushed me into it. And then when I would come home from tour, he'd let me come down, come down and work at the label and pay me under the table. And you know, it's pack, just pack some CDs up and chip them out and stuff. And you know, bought me endless dinners, bought me endless drinks. You know, he just was, you know, just so supportive of everybody—not just me, but everybody around that scene. And then the first gig that i did with the foo fighters i remember uh you know it was like this little unannounced gig and and for whatever reason mike happened to be in town and came to the show and brought his mom and joey was in town joey came to the show and all you know all my friends came to the show and so you know instead of being like fuck you for leaving no use and you know you fucked him over and blah 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 he was at my show being supportive and goes up to Dave Grohl and goes, you don't know how lucky you are to get this guy, you know? Wow. Which is like... That's beautiful. Yeah, super touching. I remember the first trip that I ever did with Foo Fighters was a promo trip because we went into like... And this time I didn't even know. I'd never heard the phrase promo trip. Like that didn't mean anything (laughs) to me because No Use For Name did not do promo trips. We did tours, you know? Um, but we went and we just did like a big lap around the world and we went we left LA and we went back east and we did a bunch of stuff in New York and then we went to London and then we flew down to Australia Um, this is a, a funny little aside Uh, we were supposed to the last stop on that promo trip was supposed to be Japan and I was so excited because No Use For Name had cancelled uh, two Japanese tours when I was in the band and passed up on another really good one so I had, had like you know three really good opportunities to go to Japan had never gone and I was like finally fucking going to Japan. We get to Australia on that promo trip. We cancel Japan. I, like, <laughs> I can't. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm never going to go to that place. And it's the funny thing is it remains the one place that we always cancel shit. I don't know. I mean, I've been to Japan a bunch of times at this point, but we, so we on the last Foo Fighter record, the week before we were supposed to go there to set up the record, the fucking tsunami earthquake, oh. nuclear disaster happens. Right. So obviously we couldn't go then. And then we had a whole, Japanese tour booked uh, late, a little while after that, and right before Dave had some throat problems, and we can't cancel the whole tour. <laughs> so it's just for whatever reason, man, I just I'm you know I'll never be able to consistently go there. But um, anyway, so the first this is the first Foo Fighter trip we ever did, and uh and we we land in London, go to the hotel and check in, and Taylor's like, hey, I'm gonna go have dinner with Brian May. You know, you want to go? I'm just like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so next thing you know, I'm, like, sitting in an Indian restaurant with Brian May, man. And there's that dude, you know, with his big, crazy hair and his clogs and the whole thing, you know, Brian May. And through the years, there's been so many of those kind of things. You know, we've gotten to work with and meet um, so many people that, you know, you stared at on album covers for so long when you were a kid, like, you know, Brian May and Roger Taylor and – um you know, even people like Chris Christopherson was maybe like the coolest celebrity I think I've ever met. Like we did the play, play this Johnny Cash tribute with him, and he, I remember we were like in the basement of the, I think it was the Pantages in L.A., like running through Sunday morning coming down, and the door opens up and it's Chris Christopherson. And we're you know he's his song. We're gonna do it with him, and it's just him, no entourage, no handlers, just an acoustic guitar in his hand. And he's like, hey, and he comes in, plugs in, we run through it like once or twice, and he goes. All right, sounds good <laughs> that was it, <laughs> and then we just sat upstairs and like talked to him, and you just wanted to like go he just uh, you know he's just so warm and cool and nice and you know normal um uh I mean, certainly the ultimate 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 crazy moment like that um and I can't imagine this will ever get topped for me personally uh was Last year we got to go play on SNL as Mick Jagger's backing band, and we did uh, "It's Only Rock and Roll" with him. And um, there's nothing bigger in the world. And the Stones are my favorite, 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 absolute favorite band of all time. And my earliest memories sort of staring at his picture on my brother's record covers. So to go do that, and he was super cool. And it, it, probably one of my favorite moments. There's so many things that were great about that whole experience that week but Mick Jagger he every time we rehearsed with him we rehearsed a few times leading up to the to the performance he would come in and you know he was hosting too so he was like probably you know stretched pretty thin but he was he would always come in and go like, oh you know I'm, I'm just gonna kind of you know sing it a little quiet, you know, I'm gonna, you know my throat's a little sore, or whatever. And the second the song would start, the guy would be just fucking bouncing off the walls going, <laughs> He's just, in, he just becomes Mick Jagger, right? You know, it's like beyond his control. And so we learned, uh, it's only rock and roll, you know, we just learned the album version, right? But if you ever look on YouTube, and this is like with all Stone songs, it seems like if you watch like clips of them playing any other stuff live, they never play shit the way it sounded on the record. You know, they always, it evolves or whatever. So we learn it and we... And we run through it, and um, and we're and we're talking about you know what to cut out or whatever, and he goes, "Yeah, I haven't played it this way since we recorded it." <laughs> it's just <laughs> fucking. Mine. I was like, "What? Okay, <laughs> cool." Should we learn that other thing? Yeah, yeah, just bizarre. And then we played the after party, um, at SNL. They always have like an after party, and they did it that night down in in the. Courtyard at Rockefeller Center or whatever, and so we went downstairs and we played. It was actually not Foo Fighters, but we um, uh, Taylor, our drummer, has had this cover band for uh, a long time called Chevy Metal, and it was Chevy Metal, but with Dave and me playing guitar and Dave playing guitar and Taylor on drums and our friend Wiley playing bass, and um, and we we had hoped that Mick Jagger would come play a song or two with us, and we know like you know ten Stone, stone songs, you know, so we were ready. But we just kind of thought, oh, that's a long shot, you know. I mean, he probably won't even come to the party. And we play a couple tunes, and we look over, and fucking Mick Jagger's on the side of stage, like getting his fucking groove on, <laughs> like ready, You know, he's like ready to come out. And so, um, you know, Pat saw that, and Pat runs up and puts a guitar on. And he gets up there with us too, because you know Pat's first concert, I think it was his first concert, was Stones' Exile on Main Street. If it wasn't his first concert, he saw them in, on Exile on Main Street tour at the Forum in LA so he was like I'm not fucking missing that <laughs> I like fucking boom gets, <laughs> gets he gets a guitar on and jumps up there and he comes out and we did bitch and we did um, uh, I th- think we did miss you with him uh, and so th- just that whole that whole week just being in the guy's presence getting to play with him getting to watch him that close it was nothing will ever top that in terms of you know freaky star you know running kind of I don't You know, we just did all these shows It just ended here at South By, um, where we were called Sound City Players. And Dave made this documentary about Sound City, this old studio out in L.A. Um, and so he made an album of collaborations with a bunch of people that are recorded there through the years. So we went out and we did all these shows. And it was a bunch of mini sets of people that are uh, on the album. Like you had Rick Nielsen doing a bunch of Cheap Trick songs. Um, and with different people, you know, and then sort of the guys from the Foo Fighters sort of slotted in here and there. And then for some of it, we were the backing band for, you know, different people. So I got to, got to play with, you know, got to back up Stevie Nicks and Rick Springfield and John Fogarty and Elaine Johannes from, from
0: Eleven. And um, it's just crazy, you know, it's, it's insane. I think Rick Springfield was one of my first concerts. I oh, really? I, yeah. Yeah. I, always loved Rick Springfield. Yeah.
1: No, it's crazy. To, like, you know, to, it's funny with a lot of that stuff, you know, I you know, I was listening to other kinds of stuff when I was a kid, so I I didn't, I never sat down, I was never the type of guitar player that sat around and learned songs anyway, you know what I mean? A little bit when I was really young, but like, you know, my, every band I was in were like, oh, we got to play originals, which you look back now and you go like, what a stupid thing to do. We should have played covers and then we would have learned how to, you know, how songs work and people would have probably liked our band, you know? But so that was so much fun to sit down and and figure out. You know, I never sat down and played along with a Fleetwood Mac record or or figured out the Neil Gerardo lead from Jesse's Girl or whatever. And and so that that was a really fun.
0: I can't imagine learning the uh, Lindsey Buckingham parts uh, on the guitar and making it sound appropriate. It
1: it was yeah. You just had to wing it, man. Like you know, for (laughs) for um, for like that song Dreams. You're listening to him going, like, I don't even have a clue how he makes his guitar sound like that, you know? Um, I have a great system for figuring out anything nowadays, though. There's, there's a series of things that I pretty much do. And that one is listen to the song, right? Just try to get what you can from that. Then watch, watch it on YouTube, because you can find, you know, you want to know how Lindsey Buckingham does it live? Just dial it up on YouTube. You can find 8 million examples of him doing it live And you can see where his hands are. And then, if that's not enough, just type something you know lesson in after the thing, and then you can find eight million people explaining how he did it on YouTube. And then, if that's not enough, there's an app on your you can get on your computer called the Amazing Slower Downer, (laughs) and that and you can you can drop drop the song into it, and it does exactly what you think. You slow it down, and you can even like slow it down and 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 set it so it just plays what you want to learn on a loop. Till you figure it out and it's like you know it's so much easier now maybe that's why i didn't it was probably way too much work to do that when i was a kid because you didn't have all that shit um and i remember i had a guitar teacher that would just figure shit out wrong and teach it to me and so i'd like try to play along at home like that doesn't sound like what that guy's doing i don't know that's not how straight cat strut goes <laughs> i was looking around on people's websites it, you know just checking Bands' websites and stuff. I remember I was on Billy Bragg's website. Oh, well, you know what's when's he going on the road or whatever. And and there was a there was a link on there that said Jail Guitar Doors. And as a Clash fan, I was like, hmm, what's that? You know, is that the Clash fan club or you know what? So I click on it, and it was it was all about this organization that Billy had set up over there called Jail Guitar Doors that that helps start uh, music programs in in prisons. Um, I was like, God, this is fucking rad! Unbelievable read the whole thing about it. And so I knew I was going there soon and I emailed, um, you know, there was like a, a email link on there and I emailed, you know, Hey, this is Chris from the Foo Fighters. You know, I'd, I'm going to be over in England soon. If there's anything I could do or whatever, you know, I don't remember what I said, but something along those lines. And Billy Bragg actually emailed me back right away, like within the day. And, um, Hey, you know, if, yeah, if you're going to be over here, we did set something up for you to go in, into a, a prison or whatever, and he did. So on a on a day off, I hooked up with uh, this guy, Alan Miles. I'm sure you know from from that whole thing. Um, and he took me into uh, uh, Brixton. I guess it's Brixton Prison, um, which is like an old Victorian, gnarly prison in in London, and it was really an incredible experience. Because you know, even like I'm consider myself to be left of left on everything you know but you still you're so conditioned to think certain things you know we've especially in america where like you know basically in my whole lifetime it's just all about throw them up and lock away you know or th- lock them up and throw away the key and uh you know three strikes you're out and all those things you know that and my mom was a probation officer my whole life and i was just around and my mom's not uh you know certainly not like some hang high probation officer but you know, you just get conditioned to believe certain things about people locked up. Um, and then you go in and you have this experience. I, I went in and I taught a guitar class for the afternoon to all these cats in prison. And you had people that were unbelievable musicians in there, to down to somebody that had maybe just picked up the guitar for the first time and could could couldn't even make a chord, you know, and everything in between. And you're talking to these guys and hanging out. And um, first off, we n- never, it never came up like, what are you in here for? So that was not even part of the conversation. I didn't know. I didn't want to know. Um, and, and the way it worked in that one was that you know, people had to earn their spot in there. So it wasn't like, because there's, there's this, some people react to, to, to you know, um, the concept of doing something you know, that seems nice for uh, somebody in prison you know why why would you do they don't deserve it you know but actually like the way that it worked is they had to earn
0: their spot and they couldn't just be only the best behaved inmates get to do this and the wardens love it because it actually is a carrot to have them work, work towards their rehabilitation
1: that's absolute that was the the most shocking part of it to me was how supportive the prison system was the governor of that prison was so cool you know and so into it and um and it was just this amazing experience. And um, so then after that, uh, uh, Alan I think asked me to come over to do that show, um, which was I guess around the premiere of the documentary that he had made. I think was what that was for. And so there was this show that uh, that you know that Billy Bragg put on with uh, with all these people, um, <clears throat> Mick Jones. Mick, yeah. Well, that was and the, you know the craziest thing about that that whole night was what blew me away. You know, I. Had, I think that was maybe the first time I met Billy Bragg was that was because remember we all went you went in, into the prison with us that day right no I wasn't with you on that day oh, you weren't with, were you at the gig did you play yeah, the gig I, that I night? came to the gig I had an I was off on
0: tour and I had an off day oh,
1: okay so you didn't go yeah. into the we went into a different prison that day and I, it was like Pentonville or something another uh prison in London but with a bigger group of people and if, and if I remember correctly like uh, Wayne Kramer was there um Billy Bragg was there, and I think that was the first time I met him, or one of the first times. But at the gig, like, Billy was, like, walking around, like, he was, like, hands-on. Like, he was practically, like, you know, putting up PA speakers. I mean, I, don't, I didn't see him do that, but it was, like, that kind of thing. Like, he was, you know, he that dude walks it like he talks it, you He's know? He's a like, beautiful guy. Yeah, for real. Like, I was so impressed. Um, that guy is no bullshit. Um and so we're playing, and they're supposed to be like, you know at the end of it, it's gonna be like you know everybody gets up there and, and plays, and it was like Wayne and Billy, and we we're doing a um like a Bob Dylan song or something, and Mick Jones is gonna get up and he gets up there and he's got his guitar and he's got no amp. and he's like got his lead in his hand. he's like you know, looking to plug it in and and so I go, oh here, take mine, and I unplug and I just figure, oh I'll go find another one because there's a bunch of amps up there. So he plugs into my amp, and I'm like standing there, kind of like, "Fuck, there's no more amps." (laughs) That was it. So I just kind of put my my cord behind the amp, and I just mimed, I just (laughs) pretended, I totally lip synced. Yay, we're fucking, you know, playing the song. Isn't this great? (laughs) Um, And that was the one and only time I've ever met
0: Mick Jones. I gave him my amp. (laughs) He better remember. I did everything I can not to stare at him too much. So, oh but, uh,
1: I couldn't help it. And I don't know if you remember, man, he was like stoned out of his mind. His eyes were like glassed it, it was great, man.
0: Uh, I appreciate you stopping by and chatting oh, no with worries. me. Putting up with me and uh, Thank you for having me, man. I'm stoked to get to be a part of it. Oh lordy. I am just making it up as I go along best I, I like can. It. I like it. I'm gonna go get some tacos or something. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Chris for sitting down and recording this conversation with me at my buddy Cameron's house in Austin, Texas. You can find out everything you need to know about Chris at ChrissShifletMusic.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a T shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. It uh, helps us move up in the search rankings and it helps a lot more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us an email, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.